I thought, all right, well, I'll just take it digital. And that's kind of like as best as I can remember. And I started, you know, cold calling to try to get advertisers. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Matt Davis, the founder and driving force behind Obstacle Racing Media, the web's number one source for all things OCR, Hyrox, and more. Matt and I have a lot in common. We're both passionate about fitness, we both started sports-specific media companies, and we both started those journeys at a time when a lot of folks said it was a really bad idea. Like Barbent, Obstacle Racing Media has stood the test of time and grown from a one-man blog into a true source and home for its community online. If you want to know about the real history behind the rise and fall and rise again of OCR, Matt has some stories from you. I mean, from the trenches. Before we get to that, I do want to give a quick shout out to today's episode sponsor, Protect Reps. That's P-R-O-T-E-C-H-T. Wrist protection is especially important for me. And as someone with a history of wrist injuries, I try and go the extra mile to protect them when I train. Introducing Protect Wraps, the first and only wrist wrap for lifting, cross-training, and kettlebell workouts designed to work around your watch while keeping your wrists and watch protected. They just launched, and you can check them out at protectwraps.com. That's P-R-O-T-E-C-H-T wraps.com. Now let's get on with the show. Matt, thanks for joining me today. Let's start at the beginning, because you you and I have been in our little corners of the sports world yes. for like for a long, a long time. We are we are in the decade plus club at this point. Woohoo! We made it. We made it. We made. Well, surprising. A lot of people said we wouldn't. Let's put it that way. But how did you get into? At least for me, how did you get into your niche or niche? I don't even know how to say it at this point. I need to actually like figure out the pronunciation. How did you develop a passion? for the OCR world initially? Uh, completely by accident? Would that be... I mean, th- that could be... A, I didn't set out to build a media company. I didn't set out to... I didn't really set out to do anything. Uh, any business I've had that's been successful or anything that I've ever done, any company I've started... I've started and stopped a lot of things and anyone that's been successful, it's because this sounds fun to me is pretty much how it goes. Not let's write out a business plan. I did not go to college. Uh, let me rephrase that. I didn't graduate college. I went to a couple of different colleges. No one ever gave me seed money. I've never written a business plan. Maybe I tried once. I don't know. So I had done a few of these races. They seemed fun to me. I went up to Vermont to cover this crazy thing called the death race. Uh, This is all in early 2012. And when I came back from that death race and meeting Joe DeSena, who's the head of Spartan and these incredible athletes and the volunteers at that event, I thought I should, I should talk to these. Somebody should do a podcast about these people. I was enjoying podcasts and I thought, why don't I do that? And I Googled how to do it and I started doing it. And that's really how it began. Let's talk about the death race, right? This is back. I remember, I remember over 10 years ago, like the OCR world, everyone 
it seemed like everyone and their cousin had a new race with a different theme. There were a right. ton in and around New York. People were doing races, some of them really cool in all sorts of like venues and trying to do like urban ver- urbanized versions. What was, and, and there was like this arms race for who could get slightly more extreme, I right. think at the time. Maybe I'm misinterpreting that, but that was my my perception as kind of an outsider. What was the death race? What was what set that apart? All right. So the death race, which still exists, I guess the shortest version possible is this this Wall Street guy named Joe DeSena had gotten to this thing in the 90s called adventure racing. Adventure racing was a very, very expensive sport where people would go to some crazy remote part of the world and try to navigate, right? You're going to ski, you're going to have a boat, you're going to run these crazy, this crazy, crazy sport. So if you Google eco challenge, that was kind of the biggest version. Adventure racing is still a sport today, but Joe DeSena had done these races and he thought, you know, this is a really expensive sport and not everybody can do it. What if I gave people kind of a taste of this? And so he and this other guy, depending on who you ask guy or guys put together this race company where they did some regular trail races, which again, still exist in Vermont. There's a company called peak racing, which still exists. You could, they have a 50 K a snowshoe race, some, some typical quote unquote ultras, ultra marathons. And then they had the first year. It was just the death division where they just gave you a bunch of kind of random shit to do. Um, and that, that eventually became the death race. So unlike a normal race, they're, they're Joe's pitch was, you know, what if when you got to the triathlon, what if when you came out of the water out of a triathlon, instead of just getting on your bike, what if you had to build the bike first? Or what if you they gave you the instructions to build the bike, but there was no seat? This idea of really taking you out of comfort and what you th- like, we're not going to give you a banana every two miles, right? You got to figure this shit out. So the death race kind of historically started with a very unconventional start. Like you show up and they go, cool. Do you want your bib? Go crawl under this half mile of barbed wire with your pack on. Cause you've got a pack and a list and all this stuff. Go crawl under that. That's where your bib is. Right. So then you do that and the race still hasn't started. So it kind of went on from there and it sort of developed into this from one days to two days to three days to it kind of lost its luster because it became sort of too arbitrary. It was like too much random shit going on. Basically there was sort of this like magic that happened in the early days of like, you can't Google anything, right? 10, 11, 12, there's no blogs. There's no YouTube videos about it. So you just kind of show up. And then once the word came out and it kind of, it just kind of devolved into something else. That's the best way I can explain it. Yeah, but it still goes on. And but so from that, Joe launched, okay, that's too much. Can we do can we do like a like a five or six mile version where you run and jump over things? And there's a whole documentary you can go look up uh called Rise of the Sufferfest that came out in 2016, which kind of explains in more detail. There's this thing in England called Tough Guy, and that's sort of where OCR has its roots. And does that make sense? It does. It does. So when was was there a, an inflection point when you realized that, okay, you're doing podcasts with these folks, you're talking to organizers, athletes, you know, this this kind of like early stage community around this, where you're like, maybe this could kind of 
be my job potentially or be a job potentially? Yeah, because I had another business. My first real business was a staffing company. We staffed trade shows and promotions and it was making decent money and I hated it like you would hate any nine to five. I hated my clients. I hated the people who worked for me. I hated everything about it. And I thought I was screwed because at the time I was like 35, 37. And I thought, well, I don't really have any other skills. Like I've started this company, but what am I going to do? And I had started doing the podcast and was, again, just not even knowing what I was doing. And there was a guy, there was a guy in Australia that was launching a magazine. And he was like, can you be my American like guy can you can i kind of pay you to help me build this is a magazine by the way so as as bad as an i magazine starts sounds starting now it wasn't quite as bad like 2012 yeah. wasn't a great time to start a magazine but it wasn't as bad as say now the the question was it's like is print dead not right oh, exactly that, not not like oh print is dead right and i and i kind of knew i was in what i like to call a daddy warbuck situation meaning this thing wasn't going to be profitable anytime soon this guy had a hobby, this rich guy in Australia, and it's only a matter of time before he decides this isn't a bad idea. Now, I gave it in my mind, I think a year, and I said to my wife, I said, let's maybe give it a run. I think I'm pretty sick of this staffing company, and what if what if I could kind of go all in on this thing? And she's like, yeah, let's give it a try. And that year became, I think, 90 days. I think 90 days later, he was like, yeah, I'm done with this. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll just take it digital. And that's kind of like as best as I can remember. And I started, you know, cold calling to try to get advertisers. What were the categories of company or companies you were targeting at that early stage? Because I also know that feeling you're like where you have this blog or you have this media, not even a media company, you just have this like media presence and you're like, wow, I need to monetize this. And I can think back to the early days, like, early advertisers or partners we were just approaching being like hey do you want to take a flyer on this sort of thing right who were some of those brands or what were the some of those categories of brands well i think yes i called it selling the dream right because there weren't there weren't these real numbers to back up but it was just hey these people are loyal i've got their eyes and ears and i probably someone else might have done far better than i did i just I've kind of been a salesman my whole life. So working for other people and some myself. And so like, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and cold call. It's not my favorite thing to do, but like I'm decent at it. So I just like every race, I just reached out to every race and, you know, pretty much any product that came, that came down the pike, I would get on the phone with her or they would reach out to me. And, you know, if you, if you go back to our old, well, I guess you can't see them anymore. I was going to say, where could you find them? I mean, I guess in the podcast, but we, there was a ton of them. There was no shortage of them. I wasn't getting a lot of money from them, but but everybody was like, yeah, cool. You're the guy. And I only had real one real competitor at the time. There was a lot of mommy blogs and whatnot and a lot of podcasts that came and went. I'm sure you've seen it. People wake up one day and say, I'm going to be the number one source for news and information. And they last somewhere between three months and a year, maybe six weeks, right? But I had one real competitor, and so they were the only ones I kind of worried about, um, and we were both kind of fighting for those eyeballs. But I had an early partner who's who I'm still friends with, but he didn't stick around, who knew that content was the game. He's like, you have to – it was like early, early like SEO stuff. 
I mean, it, you have to remember, like it, it doesn't go like it wasn't automatic back then, but there was a big shift at one point where it's like, oh, like this is how you, this is how you keep traffic. You actually write an article that's not clickbait. You say what's in the article. You have pictures about that article, like which became natural to me. That's what we were doing. We were a race company. We were covering these races. So anyway, so the brands that we got were just pretty much anyone that that you know would give us money and and it's still kind of the case today because it's super niche sport there's very few brands that have stuck around this whole time so yeah there's this brand mud gear socks who actually just partner with spartan they're like the only brand i can think of they've been around since day one it, it's cool to see those successes because you know you've seen them like literally in the trenches having to make their business work and and fight through some tough times i am curious when you talk about the addressable okay so this is Something that we got early on in the early days of Barbent very frequently, which was like, well, how big is the addressable audience when we were trying to raise money from venture capitalists? Spoiler alert, we raised zero money from venture capitalists, just to be clear. But early on, it was like, okay, well, what's your total addressable market? Like, how big can your audience be? And, you know, we had some estimates, right? And it, it turns out our some of our estimates were very close. Some of our estimates were not so close to what it turned out to be, you know, years later. How big? is this space at least in the united states like how many participants a year across all these races do you have any sort of data to give us a sense of scope uh i have spartans data because they're the most trackable spartan times everybody even the open waivers so there's this website called athlinks where you can pull up these numbers and you can take that number let's say 5000 people showed up for the race right 5000 finishers right and then you multiply that by i use 15% the no show rate is somewhere between 10 and 20% people that decide not to come because they're too hungover forgot to train broke their leg whatever that number is and that's the number and then we kind of could ballpark the rest based on estimates so tough mutter in the early days you know they were massive events two-day weekends massive events but they didn't time people so you you had to sort of guesstimate you want to hear something really hilarious of, of course that's why we have a podcast so this documentary called rise of the Sufferfest, right the guy who made it is this guy scott Keneally, um who's a friend of mine became a friend of mine i'm in this documentary by the way there's a lot of like talking heads that people recognize there's tim ferris and there's the guy that does the the uh uh, manly podcast, whatever his name is, a bunch of well-known people and me, because I'm like the guy, the one guy in the industry. So anyway, he then from that parlayed that into a, not 60 minutes, but 60 minutes sports, which was like on Showtime for a short time. Anyway, they Showtime sports called me to fact check this number that Scott came up with. And I'm pretty sure I'm the guy that gave Scott that number in the first place. So nobody fucking knows is the point. So it's this really weird little cycle of like who he said she said and you're basically the the snake eating its own tail at that point. Right. But it was it was awesome. I was like I was it was a very like sort of meta moment for me that I'm like they're they're fa- like hey I'm the fact checker and we're calling it I'm like yep. So anyway, so the time and and everybody loves to exaggerate, right? Tough Mudder was saying millions of people, Joe DeSena was saying millions of people. The best I can tell you is that and there were all these races, right? There were all these mom and pop races. Like there was a point for like three or four years where from the middle of March to the end of May, I could do a race every Saturday, Mm -hmm. right? 
within an hour. And now I can do three races around that same time, right? Because all these mom and pops went away. So uh, at its peak, you could like a couple million a year, let's say. Maybe maybe less, but we know now that Spartans numbers leveled off at about four hundred thousand a year before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Just still a lot of people. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think I said to you last time we spoke, people have been saying OCR is dead since twenty sixteen when it did finally start to dip after like this like hockey stick growth for four years, and people have been saying it's dead ever since, and it, we're still here. It's. I mean, we see that with a lot of strength sports as well. I think, and I think what people on our end will often conflate is a slowing of growth with a contraction which Correct. is which is not necessarily the case right you there are only so many people in the world you can't have exponential participation growth in a sport forever because it will outpace how it will outpace the number of people who exist at a certain point right like okay and then you start from there and you subtract like people who have access people who etc etc and the slowing of growth i think people will look at and say like oh it's getting smaller or it's dying it actually in some cases it's still growing it's just not growing as fast and you can apply that across a lot of different sports that we cover and it sounds like the same might be true for ocr a plateau does not necessarily mean a collapse correct and people are very you know think about us and there, there are a lot of places in the world that do races and still do races. And again, like that's never going to happen again. The, the growth of OCR, you know, one could say it's a sport that social media built, right? There's this new thing called Facebook and I can post a picture of myself jumping over fire, shirtless and muddy, looking really tough. Like that whole thing happened at the same time. It's also the growth of super cheap social media ads. So customer acquisition was much cheaper. Like all that stuff was it what happened at the same time. And so if you could, if you, if you were Joe DeSena or Will Dean, the people that did it well, that were the early, right. Then you, then you grew, right. Somebody was going to, and those were the guys that, that capitalized. I mean, there's another race called rugged maniac, which has been like a fun race. That is like, they just do their business. Like they don't, you never hear about them really in the, in the media. And they like it that way. The guys that started it, um, were a couple of lawyers or one was a lawyer. Um, they were on shark tank, um, at one point, but most people don't even remember that. Um, so they got an injection of cash from him and then they were later bought by another race company that puts on marathons and whatnot. And, you know, they, they put on their races and they get four to 6,000 people in every market and they're, you know. They're doing it. 25 races a year is not small. So, uh, so yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the competitive side of these because I think a lot of folks know OCR is something you do with your friends. You maybe train for. It's kind of what gets you off the couch. Maybe it's a New Year's resolution sign up. You do it as a group. There are all these different, there are all these different ways to do it, but there is a group of folks who are hyper competitive in this. And I think we've seen the growth of High Rocks, which is something we cover at Barbed as well, being kind of indicative of that and 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 making it a little bit more you know measurable and comparable like from one race to the next because all the factors are accounted for and it's all more standardized when did the hyper competitive kind of elite divisions start presenting themselves in these as like hey people are really going after world championships and trying to be the, the best at this not just trying to be like a little bit better than they were but like trying to actually throw down and compete yeah so i think 
if you if you look at Spartan and Tough Mudder are the Coke, Pepsi, Chevy, Ford of our sport, right? They were always the two biggest. And they went after different audiences, which clearly cross over some, but Spartan was it literally their sign said, you will be timed, ranked, judged, right? And if you fail an obstacle, you're gonna do this horrible thing called 30 burpees, right? Like that's what Spartan is built on. And that's very much Joe DeSena. That's how he looks at the world, right? Not everybody gets a trophy, blah, blah, blah. Tough mutter was, we're not gonna time you. That's bullshit. That's for bros. We're just going to roll around in the mud and you're going to go through electricity and we're going to scare the shit out of you. And at the end, you're going to drink beer and it's a good time, right? We are very like, so like completely different and they hated each other and there was a lot of competition and that's good for the sport, right? It kind of grew it in these separate things. And these guys literally like really hated each other in a real way because you have two giant egos in Will Dean, who was the founder of Tough Mudder and Joe DeSanto, the founder of Spartan. So Joe's idea was, well, if we're going to be a sport, if we are going to time you, everybody, there probably should be like a pointy end. There should be an elite side. What if I have, what if I create a pro team, right? That people can look up to, right? So Amelia Boone is like the first name that a lot of people have heard of and still heard of. She's like, her and Hunter are still the biggest crossover stars we've ever had in terms of, you could see them on a magazine that wasn't about obstacle racing, right? whether it's muscle and fitness or sports illustrated or whatever. Right. So that's what he did. And he flew these people around to these races and they'd win the races. And, you know, they had, they got Reebok in year two, right. Of this pro team, like Marriott was a sponsor. They had some decent sized sponsors. And then over the years, it's kind of, they realized we shouldn't like, why are we giving these people this much money? And so it's sort of like, came down but the expectation of these athletes went up and you know it's it's been a point of contention and what i tell folks when i'm talking about it is listen it's it's a tale as old as time like management thinks their fucking workers are lazy and the workers think the boss doesn't give a shit and aren't giving them anything and somewhere in the middle is the truth right because the the because some of the athletes did get like i don't know if diva ish is the word but they're you know their expectations, right? Having said that, Spartan also is not great about how they dealt with things, right? So, you know, they'd make some sweeping change without really kind of, I always say, just why don't you just pretend? Why don't you pretend to ask the athletes what their thoughts were and then still do what you're going to do? But they don't even do that. You know what I mean? So does that does that answer your question? It, it does. It does. And it seems like it's still a little bit in flux. I'm curious how High Rock's coming in and grabbing some of these athletes and saying, hey, do our races as well around the world. How has that changed this ecosystem? I think High Rocks and the Spartan sort of equivalent called DECA fit or DECA is it's a, we're in this very interesting time. It feels a lot like early days of OCR. People are excited about it. People want to do them. They want to do more than one. They want to get better at it. A lot of coaching around it. There's like way more podcasts about this specifically than ever was about OCR. So that's, that's a sign. It's not the sign, but when there's 10 freaking high rocks podcasts, just in the UK, lots of, you know, people making videos about it. How do we improve your high rocks time, et cetera, et cetera. So 
like I said, it feels like early days of OCR and we, we're, we're still in the honeymoon phase. So we're going to kind of see over time. This is high rocks third or fourth season in the States. They already took away prize money from the regular ones. So this weekend you caught me at a good time tomorrow morning. I go to Chicago for the North American championships. Totally uh, happy to help you bring some content from there. If you'd like, I'll be there all weekend. I'm talking to everybody. But other than that, other than these big championships, they have a European one, an American one, and a world championship. There's not money anymore, and there used to be like 1500 if you won your local one. They stopped doing that, and so it doesn't seem to be slowing people down, the elite athletes, quote-unquote. But you and I know people love that age group podium, you know what I mean? And that's where your real money is, right? Look at me. I'm third best, you know, whatever in my age group. And they also have a lot of categories. So there's men, women, elite men and women, men doubles, women doubles, mixed doubles. Uh, they throw in this go ruck thing. I don't understand why companies do this. It's such a small percentage of people. And one would say, well, who cares if you're, it's the cost is doesn't matter, but it, it does matter. So you're going to have seven people out of 1500 do a wave and like you're going to measure those people. It just, I don't know why they're doing it, but they also be doing it. So I don't know. Do you know what, about that stuff? This this like rucking category. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do. And basically, what you're saying is, for those who aren't familiar with high rocks, like there are waves of competition. So there's like a point in the schedule where it's, it's just going to be a division, but like a very small division, kind of sponsored by a brand where you're using some of their equipment. And maybe right. Maybe, and it might only be literally a handful of people. So it's just like, for me as a former you know, event organized or what I'm seeing in that is just like, oh, a point in the schedule where we have a, an inefficiency. But but you know what? For brands, it, it can create recognition. I don't want to, I'm not going to be at this event, so I don't know, you know, if that particular part of it will be a hit or a flop. Who the hell knows, right? You'll be able to tell me afterward. So, but yeah, I have seen that before. We've seen that in all sorts of things, especially on the strength sports side. Like you have a, a barbell sponsor that might be different than your weight plate sponsor. And there are different, like uh, you have a special platform that's like the elite platform. Rogue does this at the, uh, at the Arnold. They do like the Rogue competition platform, which is different than all the other competition platforms for a lot of the strength right. sports. It works for them. To be fair, the Arnold's also in Columbus. Rogue's in Columbus. They kind of dominate that event at this point because they're like the local mega company, right? The right. local company that became the mega company. So I'm, I don't want to go too deep in the business weeds on, on, on that, but we could talk literally all day. What do you think is next for OCR? Like, what do you think? You said we're at this really interesting time where it feels like the early days. Well, right. you've been through the early days once. So using your powers <laughs> of prediction, what's the space going to be like in five years? Well, you know, obstacle racing, you know, Spartan, it's very, it's very interesting. So, oh man, there's just so much to say, dude. Things happened right before the pandemic. Was it right before? Yeah. Right before at the end of 2019, Tough Mudder was about to file for bankruptcy. Now I have to be careful what I say. But the guys in charge did things that almost put them in bankruptcy. You had a company with this hockey stick growth, beloved brand. Tough Mudder was always like bigger than Spartan, at least in terms of like, like they got bigger sponsors, especially like England and Europe. Like they had massive sponsors and they were printing money, right? And then how do you go from that to about to file for bankruptcy, right? 
Um, you can speculate how that goes. So Spartans in this position to buy tough mutter right now. Why would Joe do that? Like, why not just let your competition go, go out of business? Well, he thought if there's not the crossovers, not so direct, if there are still two audiences, why not keep it and let it let, and own. So Joe owns them both now, which is hilarious. And I would have never predicted that ever. Ever would I have predicted that? If anything, it might have been the other way around in the early days. Because again, Tough Mudder was a bigger name and was certainly getting more people per weekend. But the idea of if I jump in ice water and get electrocuted and I do all this bucket list thing, like, do I want to do it again? Like, that was fun. But next weekend, I want to go golfing with my buddies or whatever, right? Or go skydiving or just run a marathon or whatever. So, how do you keep these people coming back? And so that's what they've both been doing this whole time is like, well, how do you repeat customers? So Spartan Joe also is, is a guy that can't stop starting businesses. So he like acquired a trail company and he has a, like DECA started this whole, like DECA comes out of Spartan and he's got a combat. There's Spartan combat, which is something to do with like, he loves wrestling because his sons wrestle. And you might've seen that guy, Kyle, whatever his name is on the Olympic team was wearing a freaking Spartan uniform. And like, these things aren't good for the race. If he just focused on the race company, I think they would do a lot better. But what I can say is that after years and years of doing like 60 races a year, which he didn't need, they finally contracted a little bit, which is probably smart. Like why do 60 races? If the bottom 15, like aren't breaking even why not do 40 races in less cities. So People have been asking me my predictions since the beginning, and I've I don't know that I've ever been able to give a real answer because it's just like things constantly like the only constant is change. So we'll see over the next two three years how High Rocks and Deca handle the 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 growth or what how they how they keep keeping keep bringing people back. The fact that you have a very specific measurable time I think helps bring people back. Because if I do a Spartan in my town this year and I do a Spartan in my town next year, they're not really the same. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think Deck and Hyrox has a much more repeatable thing that it's easy to go back to the gym, train, go back, oh, let's do it again. Even though it's not exactly the same course, it kind of it kind of is. But I uh if I could make prediction, I was I would be uh rich. <laughs> well, on that note, where is the best place for people to follow along with you so they can see future incorrect or inaccurate predictions? I'm just, I'm just, just joking, Matt. Where, where, where can the people find you? So, Obstacle Racing Media. If you put that in any of your machines of Googleness, uh, there's, there's YouTube, there's Instagram, there's the website itself. The website itself. I used to write a lot more, but now I make much more video and podcasts and Instagram stuff because people read much less. So yeah, Obstacle Racing Media Anywhere is where you can find more stuff about everything that we cover. I was going to say, we'll be in Chicago this weekend, but you will put this up probably not this week. So if people, yeah, if people are time travelers, this will be useful. If, if not, um, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate your time. Look forward to chatting again soon. All right, man. Be good. <laughs>